taking a deep breath, being calm. Well, thanks, to, uh, thanks so much to all of you for uh, coming out on a drizzly day. Um, we're re really happy to be back at the Wexner Cafe this um, fall quarter. And we've got a really neat program today put together by our friends from the university libraries, and Fine Arts Library in particular. And um, our first reader is Gretchen Donaldson. Amanda Glubisi is our second reader, and Joe Shaw will uh, follow them up. And I'll let them each tell you a little bit about what they're going to read. Um, there's coffee if you'd like any refreshments. And otherwise, just sit back and relax. And thanks for coming out and taking a break with us. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming. You probably already know that October is National Stamp Collecting Month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. And um, my grandfather was a stamp dealer. We played with stamps when we were little. My mom grew up with stamps. Um, so it was natural after I studied in Vienna in college and uh, became a big Hundertwasser fan that I started collecting Hundertwasser stamps. Um, Mr. Hunderwasser was born Frederick Stowwasser in 1928 and passed away having changed his name to Friedensreich Hunderwasser in 2000. I thought as an introduction to his uh, manifesto, which is very short as we found, um, I will read a little bit from Harry Rand's 1998 book on Hunderwasser where he talks a little bit about the stamps. Um, these are some images of first day covers. Um, I'll just let them run in the background while I read. And thank you very much for coming. Here it goes. <laughs> Here goes nothing. <clears throat> Jean, and, Jean and Jean Fischetti's Paris Gallery held an extensive show of Hundertwasser's works after a hiatus of 18 years. In May and June 1974, the exhibition of his graphic works, Stowwasser 1943 to Hundertwasser 1974, appeared at the Grafische Sammlung Albertina in Vienna. He painted the Conservation Week poster for New Zealand and revived his childhood hobby of stamp collecting when he designed the spiral tree to stamp for Austria. And that is one of the stamps in the series I'm showing. Um, it's the one that looks like a tree. <laughs> okay. Uh, quote, I loved postage stamps long before I became a painter. It was a great joy to collect these little colored pictures, to separate them from the letters which came from far away. I corresponded extensively with stamp collector friends the world over in far and exotic countries such as India, the USA, Switzerland, Morocco, Ireland, and many others. For a long time, I was unhappy and unsatisfied with myself because the pictures I painted could not stand the comparison with postage stamps. The stamps and those who made them were for me the real ambassadors of this earth, the real representatives of the world parliament, the small pictures I can carry with me in small books, they're like venerable objects, like icons, unquote. Some of his four-shilling postage, some thought his four-shilling postage stamp neither a stamp nor an art, quote, 
Somebody in Vienna sent a picture postcard with my stamp on it, but it came back refused by a German postmaster who filled in the reason, this is not a postage stamp. I'm sure he doesn't think it's art either, unquote. Such an observation from an Austrian postmaster would be less likely, where a tradition of gorgeous stamps has long existed. In 1979, the Austrian State Printing Office ran off 300 Wasser designed stamps for the Republic of Senegal. These stamps were greeted with the most sincere appreciation by Senegal's poet president, Leopold Sidar Senghor. And he said, quote, in our country, which has the ambition to be a black Greece, we have introduced art everywhere, into our official life, into our festivities, into our religious ceremonies, into our public monuments, and even into our stadiums. Now, to underline his friendship with our country, Hundert Wasser offered to create postage stamps as original works of art. No further mention is necessary that Hundert Wasser is one of the greatest painters of the world today." Unquote. At the same time, Hundertwasser also produced a stamp for the Camp Verde Islands, an image recalling his early steamships, which is included here, an image recalling in his postage stamp, Vapor, millions discovered the romance of a haunting image and felt what the ocean meant to Hundertwasser. In addition to Austria, Senegal, and Cape Verde Islands, Hundertwasser designed stamps for the United Nations. Uniquely among modern artists, artists Hundertwasser has worked on every size of object, creations as big as buildings and as small as postage stamps. Deciding which images fit which pieces is a matter of scale and viewing distance. Large objects can usually be viewed from far away. Paintings are normally scanned at a distance of some meters. Stamps require a magnifying glass to see the details. Hundertwasser recognizes practical considerations in his choice of scale. In an interview with the author, Hundertwasser said, it would be impossible to fill a building with the fine details like a stamp. Every size has its own law. And Mr. Rand asked him, when you look at a stamp and a building from the proper distance, do they sh share the same degree of detail? Hundertwasser said, yes. If a huge building is reduced to stamp size, it shows exactly the same detail. Mr. Rand asked, is this unity of design typical of all artists? And Mr. Hundertwasser said, I don't think so. I don't want to flatter myself, but I think I have the possibility to do that and others don't have it. Maybe like a Corbusier in modern times, but he made buildings and he was a painter. But his paintings did not, not match his architecture at all. If you see Corbusier's paintings, you could not have a clue to his capacity as an architect. So that's a brief introduction to the very brief uh, manifesto, of which he wrote many manifestos, but most of them are architecture related. This is the only one he wrote concerning his stamps. The stamp is an imp important object. Although very small in format, it carries a message. Stamps are a measure of the culture of a country. 
This tiny rectangular piece of paper links the hearts of the sender and receiver. It is a bridge between peoples and nations. The stamp knows no borders. It reaches us even in prisons, asylums, hospitals, and wherever we may be on earth. Stamps should be ambassadors of art and life and not simply soulless proofs of postage paid. The stamp must experience its destiny. The stamp must once again fulfill its purpose, which means it must serve on letters. A true stamp must feel the tongue of the sender moistening its gum. A stamp must be stuck on a letter. A stamp must experience the dark depths of the post box. A stamp must suffer franking. A stamp must sense the hand of the postman handing the letter to the addressee. A stamp which is not mailed on a letter is no stamp. It has never lived, it is a sham. It is like a fish who has never swum, a bird who has never flown. A stamp must have lived its life as a stamp. The stamp is the only work of art that everyone can own. Young and old, rich and poor, healthy and sick, educated and ignorant, free or robbed of freedom. This precious piece of art reaches everyone as a gift from afar. A stamp should be a testimony to culture, beauty, and the creative spirit of mankind. And he signed it on February 14th. 1990. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> well, I decided to read Sentences on Conceptual Art by Saul Lewitt, which is also incredibly short. Um, it was first published in the journal Art Language in 1969. Saul Lewitt was an American artist best known for his conceptual pieces, including Coincidentally, the white brick pyramid that just used to be outside of the Wexner Center that just started getting taken down on Monday. Um, that is some poor timing. <laughs> His work often consisted of instructions that were purchased by the collector who was interested in his work. The owner of the work then followed Lewitt's instructions and created a painting, drawing, or sculpture according to the artist's specifications. One of the LeWitt pieces with which I'm most familiar was owned by MIT as part of their student loan collection. Each fall semester, they had an art lottery. So all of the students could put their names into a lottery and they could win a piece of art for their dorm room for the year. One lucky student each year won the right to paint a LeWitt painting in his or her dorm room following the instructions that hung on the MIT gallery wall. The piece was documented and then painted over at the end of the school year. 
It could not exist simultaneously in two places, even though it initially existed as a recipe to be followed. Solowit died on the 8th of April, 2007. The artist John Baldessari, notorious for singing Solowit's sentences on conceptual art, which I will spare you, <laughs> published this eulogy in Art Forum this summer. Saul was my role model as both a person and an artist. As an artist, he opened up new territory. Beauty wasn't an issue. It would take care of itself. It would be a byproduct of strategy. I once told Saul that a particular wall painting was beautiful, and he said that wasn't the point. Yet I found many of his wall paintings better than those done by many painters. We learn how to make beautiful work early. Let's have other goals. He was a fork in the road. As a person, Saul was generous. He aided and encouraged young artists. His attitude was not, I suffered, therefore you must suffer. He was adamant that art was about the art and not the artist, a valuable lesson right now. One lesson I have yet to learn is work smarter, not longer. Saul told me when I first met him that he quit working at 3 p.m. and then went swimming. Books, music, baseball, wine, the list was endless. Saul said his standard for a good work of art would be something he could show to Giotto. What a scene to behold in that big art gallery in the sky. And sentences on conceptual art. Number one, conceptual artists are mystics rather than rationalists. They leap to conclusions that logic cannot reach. Number two, rational judgments repeat rational judgments. Number three, illogical judgments lead to new experience. Number four, formal art is essentially rational. Number five, irrational thoughts should be followed absolutely and logically. Number six, if the artist changes his mind midway through the execution of the piece, he compromises the result and repeats past results. Number seven, the artist's will is secondary to the process he initiates from idea to completion. His willfulness may only be ego. Number eight, when words such as painting and sculpture are used, they connote a whole tradition and imply a consequent acceptance of this tradition, thus placing limitations on the artist who would be reluctant to make art that goes beyond the limitations. Number nine, the concept and idea are different. The former implies a general direction, while the latter is the component. Ideas implement the concept. Number 10, ideas alone can be works of art. They are in a chain of development that may eventually find some form. All ideas need not be made physical. Number 11, ideas do not necessarily proceed in logical order. They may set one off in unexpected directions, but an idea must necessarily be completed in the mind before the next one is formed. Number 12, for each work of art that becomes physical, there are many variations that do not. Number 13, a work of art may be understood as a conductor from the artist's mind to the viewers. 
but it may never reach the viewer or it may never leave the artist's mind. Number 14, the words of one artist to another may induce a chain of ideas if they share the same concept. Number 15, since no form is intrinsically superior to another, the artist may use any form from an expression of words, written or spoken, to physical reality equally. Number 16, if words are used and they proceed from ideas about art, then they are art and not literature. Numbers are not mathematics. Number 17, all ideas are art if they are concerned with art and fall within the conventions of art. Number 18, one usually understands the art of the past by implying the conventions of the present, thus misunderstanding the art of the past. Number 19, the conventions of art are altered by works of art. Number 20, successful art changes our understanding of the conventions by altering our perceptions. Number 21, perception of ideas leads to new ideas. Number 22, the artist cannot imagine his art and cannot perceive it until it is complete. Number 23, one artist may misperceive, understand it differently from the artist, a work of art, but still be set off in his own chain of thought by that misconstruing. 24, perception is subjective. Number 25, the artist may not necessarily understand his own art. His perception is neither better nor worse than that of others. Number 26, an artist may perceive the art of others better than his own. Number 27, the concept of a work of art may involve the matter of the piece or the process in which it is made. Number 28, once the idea of the piece is established in the artist's mind and the final form is decided, the process is carried out blindly. There are many side effects that the artist cannot imagine. These may be used as ideas for new works. Number 29, the process is mechanical and should not be tampered with. It should run its course. Number 30, there are many elements involved in a work of art. The most important are the most obvious. Number 31, if an artist uses the same form in a group of works and changes the material, one would assume the artist's concept involved the material. Number 32, banal ideas cannot be rescued by beautiful execution. Number 33, it is difficult to bungle a good idea. Number 34, when an artist learns his craft too well, he makes slick art. And number 35, these sentences comment on art, but are not art. experience this for the first time together. <laughs> Yay. <laughs>
So this first one is a um, part of, what's the book called? It's a book by Andy Dillard called The Writing Life. And uh, I just read over it, and it's about what to, do, what to do when you have to tear down everything that you did and start over, which is what I'm doing now. So here we go. When you write, you lay out a line of words. The line of words is a miner's pick, a woodcarver's gouge, a surgeon's probe. You wield it, and it digs a path you follow. Soon you find yourself deep in new territory. It is a dead end. Is it a dead end, or have you located the real subject? You will know tomorrow, or maybe this time next year. You make the path boldly and follow it fearfully. You go where the path leads. At the end of the path, you find a box can canyon. You hammer out reports and dispatch bulletins. The writing has changed in your hands and in a twinkling from an expression of your notions to an epistemological tool. The new place interests you because it is not clear. You attend in your humility. You lay down the words carefully, watching all the angles. Now the earlier writing looks soft and careless. Process is nothing. Erase your tracks. The path is not the work. The line of words is a hammer. You hammer against the walls of your house. You tap the walls lightly everywhere. After after many years' attention to these things, you know what to listen for. Some of the walls are bearing walls. They have to stay or everything will fall down. Other walls can go with impunity. You can hear the difference. Unfortunately, it is often a bearing wall that has to go. It cannot be helped. There is only one solution which appalls you, but there it is. Knock it out and duck. Courage utterly opposes the bold hope that this is such fine work, fine stuff the work needs it, or the world. Courage, exhausted, stands on bare reality. This writing weakens the work. You must demolish the work and start over. You can save some of the sentences like bricks. It will be a miracle if you can save some of the paragraphs, no matter how excellent in themselves or hard won. You can waste a year worrying about it, or you can get it over now. Get, over, get it over with now. You must jettison it. You, the part you must jettison is not only the best written part, it is also, oddly, that part which was, ha which was to have been the very point. It is the original key passage, the passage on which the rest was to hang, and from which you yourself drew the courage to begin. Henry James knew it well and said it best in his preface to The Spoils of Promise. He pities the writer in a comical pair of sentences that rises to a howl. Which is the work in which he hasn't surrendered, under dire difficulty, the best thing he meant to have kept, in which, indeed, before the dreadful done, doesn't he ask himself, what has become of the thing, all for the, sweet of, all for the sweet sake of which it was to proceed to that extremity? Man, I didn't make any sense there. <laughs> so it is that the writer writes many books. In each book, he intended several urgent and vivid points, many of which he sacrificed as the book's form hardened. The youth gets together his materials to build a bridge to the moon, Thoreau noted mournfully, or perchance a palace or temple on the earth and at length the middle-aged man concludes to build a woodshed with him. The writer returns to these materials, these passionate subjects, as to unfinished business, for they are his life's work. And that was the first part. The next part is a poem called A Lower East Side Poem by Miguel Pinheiro. Has anybody ever heard of that before? It's called a Miguel Pinheiro. Apparently he was from New York. So here it is. It's kind of short. Just once before I die, I want to climb up a tenement sky, to dream my lungs out till I cry, then scatter my ashes to the Lower East Side. So let me sing my song tonight, let me feel out of sight, 
and let all eyes be dry when they scatter my ashes to the Lower East Side. From Houston to 14th Street, from 2nd Avenue to the Mighty D, here the hustlers and suckers meet the faggots and freaks all will get high on the ashes that have been scattered. There was no other place for me to be. There's no other place that I can see. There's no other town around that brings you up or keeps you down. No food, little heat, sweeps by, fancy cars and pimp spars and juke saloons and greasy spoons make my spirits fly with my ashes scattered to the Lower East Side. A thief, a junkie I've been, committed every known sin. Jews and Gentiles, bums and men of style, runaway child, police shooting wild, mothers futile, mothers futile whales, butchers making sales, dope wheelers and cocaine dealers smoking pot, the streets are hot and feed off those who bleed to death. All that's true, all that's true. All that's true, but this ain't no lie. When I ask that my ashes be scattered to the Lower East Side. So here I am, look at me. I stand proud as you can see, pleased to be from the Lower East, a street fighting man, a problem of this land. I am the philosopher of the criminal mind, a dweller of prison time, a cancer of Rockefeller's ghetto side. This concrete tomb is my home. To belong to survive, you gotta be strong. You can't be shy lest without request someone will scatter your ashes to the Lower East Side. I don't want to be buried in Puerto Rico. I don't want to rest in some Long Island cemetery. I want to be near the stabbing, shooting, gambling, fighting, and unnatural dying and new birth crying. So please, when I die, don't take me far away. Keep me nearby. Take my ashes and scatter them throughout the Lower East Side. And if I ever do this again, I promise I'll bring the thing that I was supposed to read. <laughs> Seriously, Joe, that was a wonderful ad-lib reading. <laughs> Went right along with the rest. I mean, celebrating, you know, the, the, the sites and the, the art capital of our country anyway, New York yeah. City. Um, that was real nice. Thanks to Amanda and Gretchen uh, for coming out and sharing some things with us that I didn't know and really fun to hear. And again, thanks for getting wet so you could join us in our audience today. If, if you'd all like a cup of coffee or anything for the road, it's back there. And um, hope to see you again in two weeks. We're taking a hiatus next week because Wexner's doing a big event in here. So um, I will send out an email reminder to my regulars. You'll get an email letting you remember that little piece of information. And hopefully we'll see you on the 25th. Great. Thank you so much.